Hoffman and our Pornos Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. With my guests, who I will introduce a bit later, we'll talk about important events unfolding these days in some of the Russian regions. Federalism in the Russian Federation has long existed in name only. Technically, governors are popularly elected, but it is the Kremlin that picks the candidates who are later endorsed by popular vote. With rare exceptions, they are outsiders with no ties or roots in the region they are to govern. To ensure the desired outcome of the vote, unwanted candidates, if they even venture to enter the race, are commonly barred from running. As a result, regional leaders are fully dependent on the Kremlin bosses and generally unconcerned about accountability to their voters. Political control over governors is reinforced by economic dependence. Through taxation policy, regional incomes are redistributed in favor of the Kremlin, which makes most of Russia's 80-plus regions reliant on federal subventions. Regional governors have thus long been turned into bureaucrats implementing orders from above. They are discouraged from taking the initiative for fear of making wrong moves that might displace their superiors in the Kremlin. A governor who falls out of favor may face very serious consequences such as prosecution and long prison terms. Just very recently, Sergei Furgal, the governor of Khabarovsk in the Russian Far East, was arrested on suspicion of serious crimes committed 15 years ago but commentators have suggested that his prosecution is politically motivated. Neither did people in Khabarovsk believe the accusations brought against Furgal. In an amazing outpouring of sympathy for a governor, up to 30,000 took to the streets to protest Furgal's arrest. The protests have lasted for day after day. In recent months, local governors had to face the challenge of the COVID pandemic, and in late June, they were under pressure to deliver public support during the national vote on constitutional changes, including the zeroing amendment that endowed Putin with virtually lifetime presidency. According to official reports, the vote was a resounding success, but serious allegations of fraud suggest that these results cannot be trusted. The economic decline dramatically exacerbated by the quarantine measures makes people feel worried and insecure. St. Petersburg, Russia's second largest city, appears to be a graphic illustration. The city government reported excellent voting results, but the situation with COVID has been alarming and fatalities very high. The proportion of deaths to infection is over 5% in St. Petersburg, while in Moscow it is under 2%. Soon after the vote, the governor was booed as he addressed the crowd celebrating the victory of St. Petersburg's soccer team. Let me introduce my guests. Nikolai Petrov is head of the Center for Political and Geographic Studies. Currently, um, uh, he is at Chatham House, London. Regions are one of Nikolai's major fields of interest. Hello, Nikolai. Hello. Ivan Kurila is a historian teaching at European University at St. Petersburg, but in this episode I'm interested not in his expertise as academic historian, but his experience as a resident of St. Petersburg and a keen observer of local developments. Hello, Ivan. Hello, Masha. St. Petersburg is Russia's second largest city. 
The city government reported excellent voting results, but the situation with COVID appears to be far from encouraging. St. Petersburg has the highest mortality rate measured as the proportion of deaths to registered infections. This index is over 5% in St. Petersburg, while in Moscow, that originally was hit the hardest by the coronavirus, is under 2%. Soon after the vote, the governor of St. Petersburg was booed as he addressed the crowd celebrating the victory of St. Petersburg's soccer team. Ivan, have you seen the booing episode? And if you have, what do you think about it? Biglov was elected St. Petersburg governor less than one year ago. How come he's lost his support so fast? Uh, Biglov did not lose his support. He never had it in the first place. Biglov was a pretty unpopular figure when he was appointed to St. Petersburg and he never enjoyed wide popularity. And the reason he was elected was probably because no serious contender actually was led to participate in the gubernatorial election. And that's why even the actor, actor and the producer Bartko, who represented the Communist Party on the elections, was forced to withdraw from the election because probably he had better chances than Biglov did. So Biglov was never popular in St. Petersburg and this is nothing new in this booing toward him in this football soccer match. Right. So would you say Biglov's election was typical of what happens in other regions? For some reason, the Kremlin wanted this candidate and was pushing for his election, even though he was unpopular among the city residents. Yeah, it's it's right. That's right. And we don't know why he, he was imposed to St. Petersburg. And, uh, you know, during his first winter, when he was still acting governor, he lost all of the, you know, struggle against this big snowfalls. And it was a disaster because of the snowfalls. And that was a lot of problems with the communal services that winter. Still, he was elected. And he does not look like a good manager or good public figure or political figure. So that's his accumulated distrust to Biglov is still in the air while people get in habit of governors being imposed to, to them since, you know, since the real elections do not matter in the big cities of Russia. Right. So you are telling us that Biglov has mismanaged the problem of the snowfalls. What about the COVID pandemic in St. Petersburg? What are your impressions as a resident of the city? Yeah, you know, my impressions, because it started with very low expectation about Biglov, I would not say he was the worst on the governors. I don't see many governors doing better than he I do not want to say that Biglov was good. I just I, I say that everybody else also failed. But I, I had a low expectation. In some particular aspects of the COVID pandemics, Biglov was not as bad as I expected. He was very early to close churches, for instance, when in Moscow the churches were still open and continued to be the places where the virus was spread during this holy week. The churches were closed in St. Petersburg, and that was a good decision to my mind, and that was a timely decision. And Biglov also was almost criticized in the Kremlin in June when official figures of new cases of pandemics in St. Petersburg went low. At the same time, Biglov publicly said that the capacity of the hospitals are exhausted. So he just openly recognized that the statistics was wrong and that the real situation was bad. So it doesn't look like he was very loyal in this critical period. That's why I would say that his skills during the pandemic was higher than my expectation of his behavior. 
Got it. I think just very recently he also said that the reason why the infection is still high in the city is because people are careless. And I think that this also is not a demonstration of good management, blaming it on the people. <laughs> you know, that, this is a very interesting story. If you look at the figures for the last two days, uh, yesterday and today, you'll see that the number of cases in Sinterburg dramatically fell. And that's uh, Petersburg, again, not a leader in, in the pandemic casualties. And that's actually some people who are full of statistics say that the whole story about the St. Petersburg becoming the leader in the last 20 days was because of the manipulation with statistics. They tried to keep the official figures low before the day of the voting. And then this all statistic came back as a, you know, uh, all of the cases which were not registered before the day of the voting, we were registered in the subsequent three weeks. And that's why St. Petersburg appeared as a leader, some, you know, high figures. And then when this accumulated cases were exhausted, we see the St. Petersburg get back to, I would say, normal, to the statistics as demonstrated in June, for instance. So that's a manipulation with statistics is something that makes our judgment about the management of the pandemic very unsubstantiated, I would say. It's hard to substantiate the good or bad management because this is a management of statistics, even maybe more than the management of the pandemics or virus. Right. Yeah, interesting. So there's, again, nothing new about tricks with statistics. So apparently and hopefully the situation is not as bad as it might seem looking at sheer numbers. Nikolai, would you please now talk about the situation in Khabarovsk? If you would give us probably a brief overview of what actually happens, because Khabarovsk has attracted the most attention of all Russian regions recently. I will start with saying that, in my view, there could be direct connection between Sergei Furgal and his victory in 2018 gubernatorial elections, and Putin's choice of Biglov, the one who, from the very beginning, was not well accepted by St. Petersburg dwellers. It was needed for Putin last year to demonstrate that whoever is appointed by him should be elected, even in spite of huge popularity. So what has happened with Sergei Furgal two years ago in 2018 is a pretty interesting story because at that time Sergei Furgal was considered to be a kind of very convenient candidate for the incumbent governor as he used to be in previous elections. But unlike in previous elections, results of the 2018 elections appeared to be very different. Incumbent governor Sport did not manage to win in the first round, and Furgal did get even a little bit more votes uh, than the incumbent governor. At that time, the Kremlin decided to push him out, just like Ivan was telling the story of Artko in St. Petersburg elections last year. But here, Sergei Furgal at first agreed, but later changed his mind. There are different explanations uh, why exactly happened. But anyway, this move was considered by the Kremlin to be violation of rules of the game. And uh, when Furgal did manage to win against incumbent governor in the second round, he became a kind of persona non grata for the Kremlin. Although it was the Kremlin who did give a state Duma mandate to Furgal two years earlier. So it's an interesting story about how the candidate 
who initially was considered to be very systemic player and who was supported by the Kremlin, all of a sudden decides to play on his own and he became an opponent, an enemy for the Kremlin. And since that time, since 2018 for Gal's victory, the Kremlin was putting pressure on to Forgal himself and on to Khabarovsky Prague. So at the beginning, they did decide to remove uh, the capital of Far Eastern Federal District uh, from Khabarovsk to... And later, they were trying to do whatever they could in order to demonstrate that Furgal was a bad choice. But it appeared that Furgal was a good choice, and he became a kind of people's governor in a sense that he made several very popular and positive moves, improving life of ordinary Khabarovsky dwellers. He made some good decisions, especially after last year when, due to his presence as of a governor, the United Russia lost administrative support and lost in elections to Khabarovsk Regional Assembly, where Furgal enjoyed a majority. So starting from 2019 elections, Furgal could do much more than he was doing at the beginning due to having uh, deputy support. And uh, he did cut off salaries of top-level bureaucrats. He did break certain contracts aimed to buy luxury things for the same bureaucrats. He did improve life of orphans, giving them apartments, and he did uh, make uh, several very important moves, like, say, Khabarovsky Krai is a very big region, and uh, in order to go somewhere from Khabarovsk, you should use plane rather than bus. And under Furgal, the price of tickets uh, became several times lower than it used to be earlier, making it possible for ordinary citizens to travel uh, within Khabarovsk Right. So do I get you right that Sergei Furgal was, we now have to say, was good for the people and uh, at the same time bad for the Kremlin and this matter of principle Furgal had disobeyed earlier was more important to the Kremlin than having a people's man in that region and at least being confident that the region was taken good care of. So this matter of principle was more important. That's partly an explanation of what has happened when Furgal has been arrested, but it didn't happen to other three governors elected against incumbent governors, either simultaneously with Furgal or a little earlier. And the reason why, I would say, is connected with certain efficiency of Fulgal's management, which made him very popular governor. And at the same time, Putin's popularity in Khabarovsk Rai did decrease. So it has been openly told by the plenipotentiary envoy that he is very unpleased by the fact that Fulgal's popularity exceeds Putin's popularity. So... Not only it was important for the Kremlin to send a very understandable signal to regional elites before forthcoming September elections, but it was important to stop this very, I would say, positive transformation of Khabarovsky Krai from the region totally controlled by the party of power, like almost all other regions in the country, 
to the region where it would be a little bit different. So Fordow himself was trying to avoid any open scenes against the United Russia, not to speak about the Kremlin. He was not opposing the Kremlin, but nevertheless, the very fact that he wasn't one of them and he was eager to address citizens' grievances and expectations being elected by them and according to their will, make him very bad example in eyes of the Kremlin. Right. So in this case, we can actually say that Furgal's efficiency as government manager in his region was a flaw, not an advantage. Yes, exactly. Not to speak about the fact that he was in pretty bad relations with the plenipotentiary envoy, the guy who should stage elections in 2018 and who did consider his failure in these elections as his personal failure. And that's why he did consider Furgal as his personal enemy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, this makes sense, unfortunately. So Furgal was arrested on suspicion of being an accomplice or a contractor of assassinations. Do you think there is anything to those charges? After all, he engaged in timber and I think scrap metal trade, which is not the cleanest business in Russia, to say the least. So do you think there is any reason to believe that he is probably guilty or partly guilty of those crimes? I think it can be the case. The problem is that the population of Khabarovskai does not accept this as an explanation because it's absolutely evident that what has happened to Furgal is a kind of political repressions. If only uh, he is guilty, just like the investigative committee is saying now in what was going on 15 years ago, and it has been known that time, why should he was elected to the state Duma? Why should he play a very important role there, leading one of uh, state Duma committees? So it's clear that he was well accepted by the Kremlin until he became people's governor and he did start to act on his own, not necessarily listening to orders coming from the Kremlin. So I would say that at the Far East, which is perhaps one of the most criminal regions in the country, and especially in the 90s, and especially in those spheres you've mentioned, it could be hardly possible not to violate the law and not to be involved into all these bandits, well, fights, if only having business that time. So, but this is not the reason enough in eyes of ordinary Khabarovsky citizens to arrest their governors and this is not unknown for them so they were pretty well informed about Furgal's background and the reason why they do not think it's so important now is that anybody in Khabarovsky, anybody in the Far East who was making career in business was somehow involved into different dirty adventures. One last question before we get back to St. Petersburg. How unusual is it for people to be unafraid to openly stand up to their governor whom the federal government regards as a suspected criminal? Some of the signs that protesters carried in Khabarovsk were anti-Moscow and even anti-Putin. Is it a surprise to you that in this particular region people are unafraid even as the Russian government has pursued more oppressive policies in recent years? There was good expression in all-time Russia that 
they could not send us further than to Siberia. And this is exactly true in case of Siberia and the Far East. So they used to be much less dependent from the state as represented by Moscow. They do feel themselves living on their own. And that's why I think what has happened in Khabarovsky Kai is not very typical. It could not happen to many other Russian regions, but it could happen in some other Far Eastern regions and could easily and can easily happen in two months in regional elections in those regions like Irkutsk, for example. Right. Ivan, let's get back to St. Petersburg now. Could you please tell us something about the atmosphere around the vote on the amendments in St. Petersburg? Do you, as the resident of the city, feel that there was large big-time rigging during the vote? Was there any discontent, public or maybe you know people you talk to, maybe media outlets in the city? What can you tell us about the atmosphere at the time of the vote? You know, I went to the polling station and it was almost empty. That was very few people. It was like blank books, registration books about that. I was, you know, my signature was probably the only one on the page. And then we got the results, uh, which showed uh, very high turnout. And that was like almost everywhere. And I think that the people who follow that just generally do not believe uh, the results. But that was something that people do not want to protest as well. It's It was something which, well, it's the midst of the summer, the midst of the pandemics. I guess that people just do not bother too much. Besides, of course, the political activists and people who follow the, the whole story, like general people do not feel it really important. And that's probably a mistake, but it's my my impression of how the people around are feeling about this vote, about the constitutional amendment. Of course, like anecdotal evidence that nobody around me voted for, well, is uh, usually this anecdotal evidence is not work because uh, certainly there are somebody who voted for the constitutional amendment, but uh, it also makes an impression that just the number of people who wanted to be heard is much lower than usual. And that's why the people who wanted to defend the results, to defend the votes they, they cast, was not as big as it used before during the elections, even during the gubernatorial elections. Because, you know, when Biglov was elected, at the same election, the same day, there was a municipal elections. And that was quite a struggle in, in St. Petersburg. And a lot of independent and democratic candidates were elected in the district bodies, district dumas, became a municipal deputies. So it was not always like now in, in St. Petersburg, but these June votes, you know, produced almost no public protest, no no discontent at all. Right. But in general, people in St. Petersburg have their own history of protests. And sometimes the city administration and the police respond in a rough manner. Is this right? Yeah, this is right. And that's uh, that's why I say that this current recent voting was different from what I've witnessed here before. I just think that the most of majority, I think, of the people who used to participate in the protest or trying to influence the elections at this time just uh, withdraw from, from anything. They just do not feel, I don't know, uh, it's a kind of boycott without uh, official announcement of boycott by somebody. But I, I feel like that. I feel the situation was close to this uh, attitude. There is nothing to fight for. That was more, more or less the uh, attitude now. 
Right. Nikolai, what about the vote in Khabarovsk for, I mean, for the amendments? Early on, when Sergei Furgal was just arrested, there were theories that the vote itself in Khabarovsk being different from the average and the national average in Russia was one of the reasons for even stronger discontent by the Kremlin. But from your saying, it seems like this was just an episode. And in fact, there were deeper reasons for discontent and more serious causes for for important government officials to be angry and to consider the governor of Khabarovsk as their enemy? First of all, I think that results reported in Khabarovsk are very close to those, well, predicted by some analysts who did try to subtract fraud. So this, like what Russia should present if only the Kremlin would not add huge number of votes, like, say, more than 20 million, which means that Furgal and his administration were not eager to undertake any serious fraud. They did not act against the voting uh, for these amendments, but they did not intervene. And that's why perhaps the Kremlin was not, not that happy. But I would say that, in my view, the Kremlin did start to prepare to act against Furgal immediately after his election. And what uh, has happened last week could not happen without a year-long preparations. Not only this, I would attract your attention to the fact that prosecutor was sent uh, to Khabarovsk a couple years ago from Sakhalin, where the first arrest of the acting governor Khrushchevin took place in 2015 under this very person. So the guy who was now, well, I would say, conducting law enforcement efforts oriented against Furgal was doing pretty much the same five years ago. And this, I think, shows, uh, although we can look at the Kremlin's actions as uh, a kind of immediate reaction onto the most recent events, they could play certain additional role, but it wasn't the reason for the attack against Forgal, I think. Right. Let's now talk a little bit about the Kremlin's response, the Kremlin's reaction to mass protests, actually, of a very large scale for a city which is large, but not among the largest in Russia, in Khabarovsk. What did state-run television show? What doesn't... I stopped short of saying average Russian, but let's say a national television viewer, what does he or she know about what goes on in Khabarovsk? I would say that staying in London, I am perhaps not the best expert on <laughs> Russian state television. I am much better prepared to answer questions on the internet. But I think that at first there was a kind of putting a blind eye and not showing anything uh, not to report anything about Khabarovsk, and then they've started to focus more on uh, how guilty Sergei Forgal is on certain evidences. And so the very idea given by the Kremlin was that somebody should do this, somebody should organize this. If it was not the Kremlin itself, then it should be done by LDPR party structures. And I think the way they are trying now to fix the problem shows that they do overestimate possibilities of the LDPR political party to control the situation in Khabarovsk and to do something in order to pacify 
by the region. Right. So LDPR is, of course, Zhirinovsky's party, and uh, Sergei Forgal was a nominee of that party when he was elected governor of Khabarovsk. So why do you think the Kremlin has responded with uh, a degree of tolerance to begin with? In Moscow, we see how the police responds in a very rough manner, and increasingly so in recent months, to actually any activity that even smells of politics, even to individual pickets. The Kremlin is showing, indeed, zero tolerance to any such action, and people are detained, people are fined, and fines are huge and some even spend days and sometimes even longer in jail. So why do you think the Kremlin has shown such tolerance in Khabarovsk? And we now have an acting governor in the region. Say a few words about that person. What's in store for him and why this choice? I would say that in my view, there are three reasons why the Kremlin did act in Khabarovsk in a different way if you compare it to national capitals. The reason number one is connected with the scale of protest. We should have in mind that what has happened and what will happen next in Khabarovsk Krai should be compared to half a million to million demonstration in Moscow, St. Petersburg, in proportion to the general population. So it's huge. And in case of such a large-scale mass protest, the Kremlin usually is much more careful, and not even the Kremlin, but law enforcement, local police should be much more careful, not to speak about the fact that Khabarovsk is, uh, as you rightly pointed, much smaller than Moscow, but it's it's a city where everybody is somehow connected to everybody else. So regional police cannot feel like being absolutely separated from the rest of population. And I would say that in my view, their feelings are pretty much the same with regard to Furgal and what Moscow is doing in the region as of almost all the citizens. And the third reason I think is connected with administrative resources. So Forgal's administration does not organize any kind of protest actions, but it doesn't want to suppress these actions. And this is another important factor which plays in favor of those protests to continue for, for pretty long. In my view, the fact that yesterday Mikhail Dikterov has been appointed the active governor instead of Furgal will not fix the problem. And it only demonstrates that in Kremlin's eyes, Liberal Democratic Party can somehow fix the problem, although in my view it's impossible to wait for this, because when voting in 2018, citizens did vote in favor of, uh, in favor of very concrete person, Sergei Furgal, not in favor of Liberal Democratic Party. It appeared to be that he was one of active members of that party, but that's all. And the fact that somebody is coming out of the region, and Mikhail Dikterov originated from Volga, from Samara region, and he spent pretty long while in Moscow making his party career. He's a very pragmatic guy, his career guy, but he doesn't have any experience of, well, managing anything except for propaganda department of the LDPR party. So... I would say that, in my view, at best, he can try to keep machinery established by Sergei Furgal, playing the role of, uh, well, 
phase of the administration, but not trying to reshuffle it. In this case, we can wait for certain positive developments, but I doubt that he is capable to do this. And in case, if he will try to manage the region by his own, and it looks uh, very probable, I think uh, he will fail, and the Kremlin's stake on him will fail as well. And last question to both of you. What do you think are the lessons that the Kremlin will take away from the developments in Khabarovsk? And what are the lessons that other governors or potential contenders will take away? Some analysts suggested that what is happening to Khabarovsk will somehow give a boost to protest sentiments, to protest actions in various parts of the country, that this is a very serious challenge to the Kremlin and challenges will become more numerous. Others, though, suggest that Khabarovsk is pretty unique and the situation there was as well. In September, we're going to have another series of elections, gubernatorial and to local legislatures. Who will get stronger? And uh, what are the lessons that will be taken away from that? Ivan, would you please start? Okay, it's hard to say right now because the situation is still unfolding and we don't know how it will end up in, in Khabarovsk. But I would say that the general mood in the country is much more critical and much more, I would say, unloyal to Kremlin than it uh, ever before, I would say. And the Khabarovsk just exposed the, the general discontent about the Kremlin and about this change of the constitution which happened recently. And I would say that one idea of Kremlin's attitude was, you know, was given to us by a recent decision to postpone or to abolish the Immortal Regiment March this year altogether. You know, the first idea was to postpone it into July, then it was postponed till early September, and just a couple of days, yesterday, I think, or two days ago, President Putin announced that there will be no Immortal Regiment this year. And this is a very indicative thing, because Immortal Regiment is a time when a huge amount of people went to the streets. And this is a period when Kremlin probably doesn't want many people in the streets and doesn't want people to go together and to express anything, even the patriotic feelings, because with the whole discontent which was, you know, just exposed in Khabarovsk, that may be dangerous. At least my feeling that Kremlin takes this very serious and it's probably the result will Will be the policy aimed at keeping people home at any anyway I don't know maybe the new wave of pandemics will be statistic will be manipulated or any other thing will emerge out of this protest that's my vision interesting yeah so you think the immortal regiment which actually was a demonstration of I would say people's unity and the one issue being rooted in the Russian history and the most heroic moment of the Russian history, the victory in World War II. People have marched over the past years with portraits of their grandfathers, great-grandfathers who were killed in the war, who fought in the war, in an outpouring of genuine feeling, actually. So you think that the Kremlin is somehow concerned that it might transform into maybe something not so patriotic and not so supportive? I think so, because it's the only huge uh, like social movement which actually generate from grassroots, generated out from, from the people. And uh, despite the attempts by Kremlin to control the immortal regiment, it still, to the large extent, is not controlled. It's something which emerges from the family stories and family feelings. And that's why 
I think the Kremlin consider it as something uncontrollable, potentially dangerous, because like million people on the streets can at any, any time can turn to be uh, critical or political or, uh, you know, dangerous for the current regime. This is, uh, I think, is a Kremlin concern and why Putin changed his mind. And after he publicly announced that Immortal Regiment would be postponed, he finally said there will be no uh, immortal regiment at all. He said it in the midst of Habarov's protest, so I do not think it's a coincidence. Interesting. So, Nikolai, what's your view? What is in store for us actually quite soon in September? What is going on in governors' minds right now, in possible contenders' minds, and what are the lessons that the Kremlin has probably taken away from Habarovsk? I think that not only the Kremlin is well known for making mistakes, as we've seen in the case of Khabarovsk, but it's also well known for learning wrong lessons from mistakes made, just like it happened after 2018 failures in gubernatorial elections. So in my view, generally speaking, I think the same mode, uh, the same way of dealing with elections as it has been used earlier, the Kremlin will try to practice this time also, which in my view can lead to uh, very negative consequences. First of all, I would say that, well, arrest of Fugal was aimed to send the signal to regional political elites. And in my view, this signal appeared to be very different from what it was intended to be. And that's why reaction of regional elites and counter elites in some cases can be different from what the Kremlin would like to get from them. And it's especially true with regard to those regions where elections will be complicated, like, say, Irkutsk region, which can be seen as similar to Khabarovsk in a sense that there used to be the governor who did win against the incumbent governor, but the Kremlin managed to push him out in volunteer way without arresting him so far, at least. And so the general from Ministry of Emergencies has been appointed to replace him. And so I, I have doubts that it will be possible to elect this general as well as uh, it will be possible for the incumbent a leader to win in Arkhangelsk region elections where protest behavior is pretty well visible, visible as well. But I think that the biggest trouble the Kremlin will be well faced by will come from elections in big cities. And although we do have only 18 gubernatorial races, and as I've told, uh, two of them will be tricky. So far, we have something else uh, will add. And we do have 11 elections to regional assemblies, and it will be easier for the Kremlin. But there are 22 elections to city councils of uh, regional capitals, including in Novosibirsk, in Nizhny Novgorod, in Voronezh, in big cities where the Kremlin will almost for sure see very serious troubles, if especially trying to use uh, rough methods as in the past. But the Kremlin is uh, preparing for this, and that's why deputies at the State Duma did change the electoral legislation, and now elections can take place for three days in a row. 
And so at the surface, it makes the criminal's life easier because it's possible to report about any results. But uh, I think that in, in a longer perspective, it can bring additional problems rather than make problems easier. Well, September is not too far away, so I think we will soon see just how the Kremlin will manage those elections. But there is no question, it seems that the situation has become more challenging. Thank you both very much for this conversation. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you. Thank you.